Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4. And the guys have some Bibles, so they're coming up front. They're going to make their way toward the back. Anybody who needs a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one to you. And those Bibles are marked at 1 Peter chapter 4. We've gathered in this hour, as is our custom, for worship. And we call this the worship hour. And in it, we generally do the same thing, though two weeks from today, the entirety of this hour will be devoted to observance of the Lord's table, or communion. But we usually do the same thing that we have done thus far today. And I think that familiarity and routine as it relates to many things, including worship, can be good. But I also recognize, as I'm sure you do as well, the potential drawbacks and dangers of familiarity and routine. We all know that it's possible for us to gather for something that we call worship and yet not to think about what worship is. As as a result, we can just go through the motions, go through the routine, and then it becomes empty. And worse, an affront to the God who is to be the object of our worship. And so let me remind you as I remind myself that worship has to do with worth or value. An old English word for worship was, in fact, worth-ship. So when we gather, it's to show that God is worthy. He is worthy of our attendance. He is worthy of our preparation to attend. Let me just stop there. But the truth is most of us just roll out of, out of bed, not thinking about what it is we're going to do. But God is not only worthy of our attendance, but He's also worthy of our preparation to worship Him. He's worthy of our praise in song and in prayer, worthy of our gifts that are offered to Him, worthy of our thoughts as we consider what it is He says in His Word about Himself and about us and His world. God's worth is demonstrated as we take time to gather to honor Him and engage in the things that I mentioned to show his value, his worth to us. But of course, God is not only worthwhile on Sunday morning. He is of supreme value at all times and in all circumstances. And so we need to then ask ourselves, what is God's worth? What is God worthy of to you and to me Monday through Saturday? Is he worth, worthy of being obeyed? Is he worth, worthy of even being thought about? Worthy of being consulted in his word and in prayer regarding what's going on in our lives? And how about worthy of our trust? Even when we do not understand what's going on. This issue of trusting God is prominent in Scripture. And it is so because it reflects on what we think of God, whether He is worthy of our trust, whether He is trustworthy. No matter what's going on, no matter whether I understand what's going on or not. And this is one of the major reasons that God allows difficulty and hardship into the lives of His people. He wants to strip everything away from us except Himself. And he is testing whether or not he's still worthy of our trust in our minds. Whether or not he is trustworthy. 
He wants us to be able to say with Job, and you remember the story of Job. And Job was severely tested. And yet in the midst of the testing, Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God wants us to see that he is ultimately all we need. And he tests to see what else we might be clinging to beyond him. He tests that sometimes by taking it away. Now hear this. The life of trust is a hard life to live, especially when trouble and difficulty come. It is very easy to talk about trusting God with regard to eternity. It is much harder to trust Him with today. In today's passage in 1 Peter, and in our series through this book of 1 Peter, the title of which is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong, it deals again and again with suffering and difficulty and trials. And as always, the purpose for the trial is to test what we really believe, whether we really believe God is worthy, worth our trust, whether his plan is trustworthy, whether he'll be worshipped by us even in the midst of pain. We're going to see that again from 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you for focusing our minds upon the task at hand now to look into your word, to see your instruction there, to remind our forgetful hearts of you and that life is about you and that you endeavor in all that you allow to point us back to you. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that and then help us as forgetful hearers so often to remember that Monday through Saturday. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there are roughly three categories of suffering, of difficulty, of, of hardship. The first of those three is this. It's what, it's what happens just because we live in a world that has gone wrong. And we'll look at the other two in just a bit. That is, we live in a world where things have gone wrong, a world that has gone wrong, bad stuff happens. And as a result of that, I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that in front of you already, I encourage you to take that out and look at it. Because the Bible is teaching us that we should, first of all, expect suffering. We should expect suffering. Verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so that is why I say in the opening point of the outline, we should expect suffering because it's natural in a fallen world. That's why Moses, who among the 150 Psalms that are contained in the book by that name in your Bible, he wrote exactly one of those, Psalm number 90, and he had become somewhat of an expert on, on death and difficulty at the end of his life, he writes Psalm 90 after a 40-year sojourn, leading God's people in the wilderness. And he says in the midst of that psalm, we finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. And Peter is 
then reprising that, that same theme. In verse 12, he says, Do not be surprised as though something strange is happening to you. And the terms surprised and strange are related in Greek, the language from which your New Testament was translated. They're based on the same word as the one for stranger or foreigner. It envisions someone who's an alien or in a foreign environment, someone who's out of place and so is wandering about, astonished and bewildered at what they're seeing and what's going on. And what Peter is saying is we should not think that suffering is something foreign and alien causing us to be bewildered and astonished. Do not be surprised, as though something strange were happening. Now, that Greek word from which those two words come is, is xenos. Now, we, it, means, it means stranger or foreigner. As I've said, xenophobia is a fear of a foreigner, a fear of those who are different, those who are, those who are strange to us. I attended a conference several years ago at a place called Xenos Christian Fellowship. Strange Christian Fellowship. <clears throat> Fortunately, no one knows what Xenos means. You say, well, who would do that? Well, they are located in Columbus, Ohio, near the campus of Ohio State, so that might, that, that may explain it. So suffering is not foreign to this life, and it is certainly not foreign to the Christian. And so contrary, friends, to, frankly, the nonsense that you hear so often on the radio, in books, on television, you know, that, that God wants you healthy and wealthy. How can we be reading the same book if over and over again God has emphasized that difficulty and suffering are not foreign to his people? And yet we have people hawking their books and yes for money in order to teach you the way for you to have wealth and health. There was a book some years ago titled God Wants You Well. But the truth is if we're going to be very honest about what Scripture teaches, there are times when God wants you sick in order to teach us things about ourselves and about Him. We find that in Scripture, do we not? The great apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I pled with the Lord, I begged the Lord three times, remove this physical ailment from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. God may not only want you sick, but the truth is the Bible says it is appointed unto man. There is an appointment for us all to die. If you think about the logic of the, the healer types and the people who say everything can be healed and it's always God's will for it, for it to be healed, the logic of that is no one dies. You see, because death and sickness both come from the same root, that root being sin, and that will not be completely rooted out until the return of the Lord Jesus and the eternal state. So those who say God never wants you sick and God never wants you to suffer are saying something quite contrary to what Scripture tells us over and over again. We should expect suffering, and particularly as Christians. So since this is not a surprise, then how should we view suffering? Verse 12 tells us that suffering should be viewed for what it really is. Suffering is a trial. 
Verse 12 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, the fiery trial that has come upon you. The word translated ordeal is the word for trial. And that word is one taken from metallurgy. The ore of a metal was placed in a cauldron and heated until it reached the melting point. And then and only then were they able to determine the value of the ore. Because under the heat of that fiery trial, the metal was separated from the dross and the dross was skimmed away. And the psalmist tells us that that's what God does in our lives. You, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. And Peter has already said that as well in chapter 1. If you just flip over a few pages back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you, have may, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God brings fire into believers' lives to put them, to put us to the test. In order to reveal the true value of our faith, what we say we believe. Remember, faith and belief in the New Testament are the same word. In order to reveal the true value of what we say we believe and to refine it further. And it's been God's way of dealing with his people throughout history. Go back to the time of Abram, called out of paganism as an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees in a place that is modern-day Iraq. And his supreme trial is given to us in Genesis 22. God asked Abraham to take his own son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to God. Of course, you know that God in his plan did not require him to offer up Isaac, but it demonstrated once and for all the genuineness of that man's faith. If you face suffering in your life, remember these words. This is a test. And this is a test from God to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith and to refine us and to make us pure. Verse 12 describes what we all experience because we live in a world gone wrong. It's life in a fallen world. No matter who you are, even if you don't know Jesus, life in a fallen world is like that. Bad stuff happens. But verse, verses 13 and 14 tell us about the second of the three kinds of suffering. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This clearly describes what happens when. Not just we live in a world gone wrong, but now these verses are saying this is what happens when you live right in a world gone wrong. We live in a fallen world. And so you just get hit by the shrapnel of the battle that goes on in a fallen world. But then there's the second kind of suffering that comes from living right in a world that has gone wrong. And verses 13 and 14 are telling us the second thing in the outline that I've given you. Not only should we expect suffering, we should rejoice 
in suffering. We shouldn't be surprised at suffering in general, nor should we be surprised that we might suffer for living like Jesus. And that's what verses 13 and 14 are saying. Now, why should we not be surprised that we might suffer if we're to live like Jesus? Well, because Jesus predicted as much. Matthew chapter 5, in the midst of the Beatitudes, (laughs) which one preacher, in quotes, called the be happy attitudes. Okay, be happy if you're persecuted because of righteousness. Not really. It's blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We have seen in recent weeks and in the past that there's a vast difference between what we're being told here to rejoice, to be joyful, and happiness. Happiness depends on what happens. And that's why these are not the be happy attitudes. But come what may, no matter what happens, we can rejoice, we can be joyful. That's what God is telling us. And Paul, the great apostle, said as much as well that we should not be surprised when if we live like Jesus, then we will have the same kinds of results that Jesus had. He said everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And how might we be persecuted? Verse 14 of 1 Peter 4 says, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are are blessed. And indeed, we shouldn't be surprised if insults come our way, if we seek to live for and like Jesus. Because remember, here's Jesus on the cross, and the Bible says those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. And the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So we are told now to rejoice, even in the midst of suffering, in particular if it's suffering because we're living right in a world gone, gone wrong. We're not glad it's happening, but joy, you'll remember, rejoicing is an abiding sense of delight, even in things you're not happy or glad about, because God is at work. Be joyful. Hear this, because this kind of suffering, when you're living right in a world gone wrong, this kind of suffering identifies you with Jesus. Because verse 13 says, Rejoice in as much as you, and notice this word, participate in the sufferings of Christ. The word translated participate is a Greek word you're familiar with, many of you. It's koinonia. And how do we most often translate koinonia? It's usually fellowship. And here it is saying, rejoice inasmuch as you have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. You participate in the sufferings of Christ. Koinonia has its root in what we have in common. In this kind of suffering, suffering for living right, we're showing that we have in some measure the same righteous character as Jesus. That we have some of the same character qualities in common with him. What an amazing thought. But Peter, in his next letter, 2 Peter, the very first chapter, 
says this very thing. He says, you participate. Same word, koinonia. You have in common the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So God, when we are born again and then adopted into his family, when we become the children of God, we are made new. And God gives us new desires, and he is making us new so that the character qualities of God, of God the Son, that we see in Jesus, are now to be in increasing measure manifest in our lives. And so when I suffer like Jesus suffered, when you suffer like Jesus suffered, for living like he lived, rejoice, because that identifies you with him. It's a proof that you belong to him and that you're becoming increasingly like him. If people hate you for behaving in the same way Jesus did, then that's an indication that you're becoming like Jesus and in that you belong to Jesus, you should rejoice. We can be joyful because suffering like Jesus identifies us with him. And here's a second reason that we can rejoice when we're suffering for living right in a world that's gone wrong. Because it will mean even greater joy in the future. It identifies us with Jesus, but it will mean even greater joy in the future. We'll find that our present joy through suffering will turn into an overwhelming celebration when he returns. Now why? There are a couple of reasons. The first one is, there will be no shame when Jesus then returns. Because he's allowed us the privilege of living, suffering, perhaps dying for him. If we're faithful now, we can stand before our Savior without shame. And also, we'll be vindicated, the Bible teaches, before the enemies of Christ. When he appears, all the mockers of this world, all those who have persecuted his messengers, all those who have taken joy in inflicting pain on those who have participated with Christ in suffering, all of them will be put to shame and silenced. Yet all of those who have stood for him will be vindicated in the sight of sinful men. What a victory celebration that will be. And the apostles saw it this way. The first followers of Jesus understood all of that. They saw their Lord suffer. They saw his righteous life. They saw the reaction of the world to him. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him victoriously risen, and they knew that they too would be raised. And so in the meantime, they considered it a privilege to suffer for and with Jesus. And so you find them in Acts chapter 5. After Jesus has ascended back to the Father, he's given final instructions to these first followers. And he says to them, I want you to go and preach to all nations. They encounter the same kinds of hardships that the Lord Jesus did, the same kind of persecution. They're jailed. They're told, don't do this. And yet they're imprisoned. The Bible says they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They let them go. And the apostles left the Jewish ruling council, rejoicing because they had been counted, notice the word, worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so what did they do? <laughs> they kept preaching day after day. 
in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So are there, there are these three categories of suffering. The first is just living in a world that's gone wrong, you will suffer. The second is when we live right in a world that's gone wrong. But then there's another kind of self-inflicted suffering. And that is we live wrong in a world gone wrong. You know, you're, just, you're going to suffer because that's life in a fallen world. If you live like Jesus lived, you will suffer for living right. But then there's a self-inflicted kind of trial and difficulty and hardship. It's when we live wrong in a world gone wrong. And verses 15 and 16 tell us about that. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So we need to be reminded here, as Peter is reminding his first readers, that there's no value in simply persecution in itself Why is it that I'm being persecuted or why is it that I'm suffering? If I'm suffering because I've done wrong, there should not be that kind of suffering, says says Peter. Sometimes, and the reason Peter has to remind them and us is because sometimes we can develop a persecution sort of complex. And it can cause you to behave in all sorts of ways. You ever notice that if any of us are presented with a a card, an excuse card to play, that we somehow always find that card to play. We tend to play the victim card or the race card or even the Jesus card. But you see, if you behave in annoying and unnecessarily offensive ways, when people don't like you, it's not because you're standing for Jesus. And you can't play the Jesus card because you're offended, offending people. If people think you're strange, it may not be because you're standing for Jesus. It may be just because you're acting really weird. And unnecessarily so. I personally do not see the value of standing for Jesus on a street corner as people are going into a sporting event and yelling at them. I have been accosted by people on the street yelling at me about the fact that I'm going to go to hell. And, you know, I just kind of walk by, I'm trying to get in the game, and I say, I I get it. (laughs) And I've, I've punched my ticket to heaven, and I'm getting my ticket to go in the Tiger game, so leave me alone. My wife spent uh, some time uh, in college down in Pensacola, Florida, at a Christian college there. It's not a college that she would recommend or I would recommend. It's not the same one our daughter is attending in Clearwater, Florida. But when Kim was down at uh, Pensacola Christian College, uh, she still remembers how she drove around with some friends through Pensacola, and there would be these guys standing on the street corners just screaming at cars. And they have Bibles in their, in their hands. And they're screaming at these cars, preaching at them. Well, you know, it was August, and it's Florida, and everybody has their windows up. You've got to scream really loud to get your message across. And so when we have a card to play, 
You know, we're being persecuted. That's why these people don't like us. That's why they mock us. It may not be because we're standing for Jesus. It may just be because we're acting weird. A persecution mentality can result in an entitlement mentality, whether it's a religious persecution mentality or a political or any other kind of persecution mentality. I'm not going to wax any more political than I already have today, but I will say it is amazing, and it it should be amazing to anyone, that our former mayor in Detroit can still maintain he never stole a dime from the city. Now, the only way you can do that is if you've developed a persecution mentality that then results and morphs in an entitlement mentality. But do you know Christians do this? Do you know there's a whole bunch of Christians out there that believe in something called the transfer of wealth theory? I'm not making this up. There are a lot of them. Transfer of wealth. The idea is that God has promised to transfer the wealth of all the wicked to Christians just before Jesus comes. And they are just giddy that Jesus is coming soon, which means our money's coming soon from those guys. So we're persecuted now, but we're entitled to what it is you have. It explains why some Christians treat non-Christians the way they do. You've stolen our stuff. It belongs to us, they think. All right, I said I won't wax political. This, this really is the last one. You know who Raphael Cruz is? He is Senator Ted Cruz's father. If you just want to Google Raphael Cruz, he's a, a preacher, and he believes what I just said. Ted Cruz's dad believes in the transfer of wealth theory, and he preaches it, and he preaches it on the campaign stump for his son as well. So we can excuse the scrutiny as persecution, but the truth is these guys who hawk that are money grubbers and some are outright crooks. And on their best days, they're just being dishonest. You say, Pastor, just tell us what you think. Don't hold anything back. Isn't that a bit harsh? Unchristian. Unbiblical. Here's what Paul had to say in Philippians chapter 3 about false teachers. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. And I'm telling you, dear friends, you run as fast as you can from an author, a teacher, a preacher, a pastor, a religious leader of any sort who is focused on earthly things and amassing wealth. And God wants you healthy and wealthy. We should evaluate suffering. Why are we suffering? And in this passage, in verse 15, it says, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal. But then notice the last one. It seems kind of out of place. Murderer, thief, criminal. Okay, we all get that. But a meddler? I mean, that's a respectable sin. I mean, we all do that. We do that during the week. We do that during cafe community. I'm just making that up, I hope. We do that in the nursery. We do that as we're doing our whatever we're doing. But, you know, I, Scripture does this. It has these lists of sins, and we go, yep, 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 those people, those people, that's horrible. 
and then it just sticks something in there and goes, oh, that can't be that bad. I do that. A meddler. Which in turn, by God's promise, causes all kinds of problems in whatever group in which it occurs, including God's church, and we are warned then against it. We should expect suffering. We should rejoice in suffering. We have to evaluate, though, why it is we are suffering. And then fourthly, in verses 17 and 18, we should understand suffering. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, verse 18, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, you notice verse 18 is in quotation marks. That's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 31. Proverbs 11, 31. And here's what it is, here's what it's telling us. It's telling us that not, you know, when you read verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin with the, the family of God, the household of God. You could read that and you could come away thinking it means it's high time now that the church be judged. And I've heard it preached that way. And indeed, there are people who are naming the name of Christ, who claim to be part of his church, and Lord knows that there, we, we could use some pruning and refining, a la what I said earlier. But that's not what this is saying. When it says it is, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, what Peter is saying is this, is that judgment comes first, begins, starts with the household of God. But there is coming another judgment in the future that is far worse and of a different kind. So at the beginning of verse 17, when it speaks of judgment that begins with God's household, it's not judgment for salvation. It's not judgment for, for heaven. That judgment has already been rendered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thanks be to God. That's the good news. He took the wrath. He took the judgment that I deserved upon himself. And therefore, I do not have to pay in judgment forever, separated from God in the eternal penitentiary of the damned called hell. I don't have to do that because Jesus took my punishment. But the judgment that's happening now is a refining judgment, a discipline in the lives of God's people. God is refining and disciplining His people, and that's happening now in this life. But then there will be a judgment in the next life for those who have rejected Jesus and have rejected the payment that Jesus made, and they will pay themselves forever. We see this alluded to in Malachi chapter 3, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Where the Bible says, the Lord will be a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, that is, those of the Levitical tribe and the priestly tribe. And he will refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So God is in this life refining his people, maturing his people, and disciplining his people. It is time for judgment then, that discipline, that refining, to begin with the family of God. And God has been doing that with his people throughout 
his history with them. But then Malachi goes on to say, God says, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive foreigner, the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see two judgments here? There's the refining fire of discipline and maturing and pruning of God's people. And then there is the later judgment. And so we look at it now and we say we're being judged in a sense now. They'll be judged later. And if they would have accepted the judgment that Jesus made 2,000 years ago, they would not need to be judged later. But God says that's the order. That's the order of priority. It begins then with God's people. But how will the outcome be, end of verse 17, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God is so intent on His holy character being shown in His creatures and in His new creatures that are part of His household, that He disciplines and refines and prunes and purifies us, what will the outcome be for those who refuse to obey the gospel of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is God will do what is necessary to cut away all that is in opposition to him. And so it is a warning. So we must understand the suffering that we as Christians are involved in in this life. It's temporary. It is for God's good purpose. And it is a different kind of suffering and judgment that those who are outside the household of God will suffer in the future. Lastly, in verse 19, Peter tells us, we should expect suffering, rejoice in suffering, evaluate it. Understand that there are these two different kinds of judgment, depending on if you're in the family of God or not. And then lastly, we should trust God in our suffering. Verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Remember I started out at the beginning and I said God tests us for whether or not He is worth being trusted, worthy of being trusted, even in the midst of difficulty. And now what Peter is telling us in verse 19 is, if you're suffering according to God's will, you're suffering for living right in a world that's gone wrong, then what we should do is commit ourselves to obeying the Lord in the midst of that suffering because, indeed, He is worthy of our trust. Why is He worthy of our trust? Verse 19. He's our faithful Creator. He's our Creator. He's the one who made us. He's the one who knows everything about us. He knows our frailty. He knows everything we need. He has in the palm of His hand everything we need. He knows what is best for us. He is not just our Creator, though. If He were just our Creator, then He, would be a, he could be a dictator, and, and God is in the sense that He has the authority to order the world that He created. But He is not just a dictator. Our God is a benevolent dictator for His people. And that's why verse 19 says He is our faithful Creator. Faithful, full of faith. He can be trusted even when our trust fails. And therefore, His faithfulness is seen in Him 
always doing what he has promised for his people. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, the one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So in the midst of whatever's happening in your life, God's involved. God is not absent. That question that you've been asking yourself, where is God or where was God? God is there. God was there all the time. And even though you can't understand what it is that God is doing in the midst of that trial, the question is, has He shown Himself worthy of your trust? Will you worship Him in the midst of that difficulty? So I say in your take-home truth, when suffering, we can trust God in faithful obedience. And we're going to close in prayer. We're going to commit to the Lord the trials, the suffering, the difficulties that He has allowed into each of our lives. All sizes, shapes, and forms. I want to speak to some of you here who may be outside what Peter called the household of God. He said in verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if judgment comes upon the household of God, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? Dearest friend, you are in this room by God's divine appointment. and We each have a, a rendezvous with God. A time that we will die and we will stand before our Creator. He is the faithful Creator. What He promises for good to those in His household, He will do. But what He promises in punishment to those who reject Him, He will do as well. And God the Son has come to live the life that you should have lived and I should have lived and die the death that we deserved. And He offers Himself to you. And all you need do is with the empty hands of faith Bring nothing to your God, your Creator, except your sin. That's all you have to offer. And you say, Lord, take it. And I ask you to forgive it. And I ask for the blood of Jesus to cover it, past, present, and in the future. Because some of you are sitting here and you're saying, I've got a habit that I can't, I can't kick. I know that because you can't do it in your power. I've got something I can't give up, and until I clean up my act, I can't come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, He cleans up your act. So you bring nothing to Him except your sin. And He forgives your sin and covers it past, present, and get this, future. So even with the struggle, and you will struggle, and I struggle, and all of us struggle, but even with that, that the blood of Jesus has covered your sin, and you're part of the family of God. And He invites you to come into His family now. And I just say this with all the love I can. Please don't reject His offer of salvation. God keeps His promises to those in the household and those outside the household. So what do you do? Realize you're a sinner. Be willing to admit that. Recognize Jesus is the answer to your sin, the only answer to your sin. He died that death on the cross because he lived a perfect life and therefore his sacrifice on your behalf was acceptable to a holy God. Nothing you can do, have done, will ever do will be acceptable to God because it is always tainted with sin. But Jesus' sacrifice was perfect 
God the Father accepted that. You then repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you with my life. I give my life to you. Teach me thy way, O Lord. And you receive Jesus into your life. We're going to bow. And when we do, you pray from your heart to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the only way for forgiveness of sin. I ask you to cover my sin. I give you my life. I want to follow you with my life. The Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the timeliness of your word, the relevance of every passage that you have seen fit to preserve for us in your word to our lives today in 2013. Lord, we suffer. We live in a fallen world, but you know all about it. And you've instructed us with regard to it. Help us to see it clearly. Help us not to be surprised by it. Help us to evaluate it and even see that we can rejoice in it. And Lord, I pray that those who came into this room who are outside of the family of God, that right now your spirit is moving upon their hearts and drawing them to yourself, showing them their need of the Lord Jesus, convicting their hearts, causing them to cry out, Oh, Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I thank you, Lord, for being merciful to me, a sinner. Not only when I was at age 19 and I first came to you, but your mercies are new every morning to your children. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.